interesting passage, isn't it? Taryn said to me um, the other day, why are we doing such a horrible passage? And what I've noticed as we've been making our way through Abraham is that there's a lot of stuff in Genesis. I was saying to some friends yesterday, there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament and the New Testament that you would never get taught in Sunday school. And yet it's there, and, and I don't know, I think it's maybe a, I don't know how you would teach it in Sunday school, but, but this is reality, isn't it? We like to think as Christians, uh, 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 all of God's people have got little halos on their head, and they're like, ah, ah, and everything is peachy keen. But you know what? Christians are a messed up bunch. And uh, God's people have always been a messed up bunch. And if there's one thing that we've learned about Abraham is that he is very human. He is on a journey of getting to know God. He's on a journey of, of, of experiencing who God is and, and, and changing his life from that. And we'll get to the point where he trusts God so much that he's willing to sacrifice his son, trusting that God will bring him back to life again. We'll, we'll get to that. But at this point, Abraham's still on that journey. He, he's still learning who God is. Remember, uh, if, if you read your bulletin, um, Uh, The message on the message reminded us that the context of the story of Abraham is a world that knows nothing of who God is. And God has come and said, uh, I want to first show people who I am. Ultimately, uh, God's going to come and rescue us in Jesus. uh, But even Jesus' point, Jesus doesn't just come and rescue us and leave. He first comes and, and shows us who God is. In fact, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But God started that work of revealing who he is uh, way back when through the person of Abraham, and he just continues that on. And and we've been looking at some of of who God shows himself to be. Uh, It's an interesting story here because uh, a lot of it looks like it's not about Abraham, uh, and yet it's still about Abraham learning about who God is. You'll notice uh, what Pam read to us. It starts with God and Abraham, and it finishes with Abraham back at the place where he spoke with God. So it's, it's about Abraham learning about who God is through what God does. Uh, Abraham and Lot, remember God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, leave your family, leave everything you've got, and, and go to the place that I'm going to show you. And Abraham, in obedience to God, said, I'm going, God, but I'm taking my family with me. And he took Lot, his nephew, along with him. That's a bit of a strange thing. That I don't know if, if well, God didn't seem to mind. But eventually they get too wealthy for each other, and they separate, and, uh, and Lot takes the good land. He takes the plain where the cities of Sodom and, and uh, Gomorrah are. Uh, he, he settles outside of Sodom. Sodom by this stage, he's, he's moved into town. He's become quite a big man there. He's, he's one who sits at the town gates, which is the place where the elders, uh, basically the judges, would sit. He's, he's an important man there. We're, we're told in Genesis 13 that, that the land of Sodom was a place like the garden of the Lord. It was a beautiful, wonderful place to be. It was the best land that Lot took. But all's not well in Sodom or Gomorrah or any of those other cities of the plain. It's a place where might is right, where whatever feels good rules. And an outcry, we're told, has gone up to God uh, and, and God is going to judge. There's an outcry there, just the very fact that they're in rebellion against God, but, but also when we sin against God, we end up hurting each other as well. 
Uh, and God hears that. It's, it's the same sort of language of, of the Israelites crying out to God while they were in, in bondage in uh, Israel, and God heard their cries. Here, God hears the outcry of what is happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's a very interesting thing that we find there at the very start. We, we hear God speaking to himself. Now, I sometimes speak to myself, but why would you write that down? But when God speaks to himself, I think this is about the only time that we, that we, we hear God sort of musing through. Oh, no, I take that back. We've heard that already in Genesis when God created. He said, let us create. But here God is, is deciding, shall I let Abraham in on my plan? Shall I tell him what I'm going to do? And what's really interesting is that God decides to let him in, but, but he also lets us know why he chooses to tell Abraham. God didn't have to tell Abraham anything. It's not like God needed Abraham just to like give him a, uh, just ask him some questions, make sure he's going to do the right thing. God would have done the right thing anyway. If, if Abraham wasn't in the story and the angels had arrived in the land of Sodom, Lot would have welcomed them the same way, I'm sure. The angel God would have been just as merciful and gracious to Lot and his family. Why does God talk to Abraham? And why do we hear at the very end there that, that God remembers, saves Lot because he remembers Abraham? Well, we're told here, he, he says there, um, uh, just on the next page if we can, uh, Corey, he says there to us, oh, that's okay, I can't remember what page it's on. He, he says there to, um, to himself, chapter 18, God says, should I hide my plan? Why? For Abraham, verse 18, will certainly become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. I have singled him out so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. And then I will do for Abraham all that I have promised. In other words, God says, I'm going to tell Abraham what I'm going to do because of the agreement that I have made with him, because of the covenant that I have with him. Abraham's family is going to be the means that will bless the world. They will be the channel of God's undeserved kindness and blessing to the world. Ultimately, they will be the people through whom Jesus, God incarnate, will come. But they are also God's representatives. They are the ones who are, who are to act as a, a holy nation, a, a priesthood for God. They are there to represent God to the rest of the world. They are to keep the way of the Lord, as God puts it. To a world that doesn't know God, God comes and makes himself known to Abraham and through Abraham, Jesus, and, and us, God is making himself known, first of all, through Abraham, most definitely and most completely through Jesus, but he's still making himself known through us. You see, it's not just about Abraham knowing who God is. It's about Abraham then revealing God to those around him. That's the point of Abraham. That's the point of Israel, to be a people who show the world who God is, and, and how kind he is. And, and God is explicitly says that, that Abraham is to teach his descendants righteousness and justice. 
And as they keep God's way, God would do all that he had promised for Abraham. And, and so I think what God is doing here is saying, I want to let Abraham in on what I'm going to do because, well, because I want him to understand what my righteousness and my justice looks like. I, wanna, I want him to understand how I deal with evil and with good. And it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because it sounds like Abraham has to haggle with God. And you read it and you go, well, does he have to? Surely, surely, uh, you know, if, if Abraham hadn't asked God about the 50, well, then, you know, 50, God would have wiped out the city. Well, that's not the case, is it? Um, at music practice, Pam said, that's my favorite verse, as she did this morning. And she said to us, it's not a question, it's a statement. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? You see, Abraham wants to talk with God. I find it interesting that, that God sends off the angels, but, but God chooses to stay and talk. And Abraham wants to talk. He wants to know if the righteous, if, if those who trust God, if those who are, who are God's people have to suffer along with those who who tell God where to get off, who, who reject God's right to be king. And Abraham is convinced that in a city the size of Sodom or Gomorrah, there's going to be at least a few righteous people. And that it would be right, thinks Abraham, for God to spare the whole city for only 50, 40, 30, 20, 10 people. And we're not told why he thinks that. God agrees with him. He says, I won't wipe it out if there's 45. I won't wipe it out if there's 30. I won't wipe it out if there's 10. And I wonder if there's two reasons why, why God's justice would not wipe out the wicked for that reason. One reason, of course, is that if God was to wipe out the whole city, he'd be wiping out the innocent as well as the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You see, Abraham is figuring out how God's mercy and justice and God's doing the right thing fit together. He's working it out in his mind. He's almost saying to God, you wouldn't do that, would you, God? You wouldn't wipe out the innocent as well as the wicked. You wouldn't, would you? And God says, no, Abraham, I wouldn't. But I think there's another reason perhaps why God wouldn't do that. And that's because not only are the innocent innocent, not only are those who accept God as king innocent, those who live for God innocent, but, but they are also those who are a force for good in the place where they find themselves. Part of God's agreement with Abraham was that he would be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And, and, and I think that blessing, part of that is being a righteous minority in a world that wants nothing to do with God. A minority that knows God, that represents him. A, a, a priesthood, and ambassadors to God. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, just uh, flip over with me to uh, Matthew chapter uh, 
5 verse 13. Matthew chapter 5, part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 says this, You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Jesus is speaking there of those who trust God being salt and light to a world. Putting a spotlight on who God is and how very much we need his kindness. But, but also, salt's got that idea of being a preservative, a, a reason for God to delay judgment. A, a means uh, for there being time for people to turn to Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. And I can't help but wonder if, if one of the reasons why God says, I'm not going to wipe out the city when there are even 10 people, is because those 10 people are there as God's representatives, saying to the city, saying to their neighbors, saying to their people, turn back to God. God loves you. God wants better for you than this. God is kind and gracious. If you just turn to him, he will forgive you. He is faithful and just like that. And then it's good. That's wonderful, that. And then in chapter 19, verse 1, we meet Lot. As I said, he's, uh, he's become an importantish man. He, he sits in the place where the elders of the, the city would, would sit. 2 Peter chapter 2. Verse 7, 8 says, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the sin around him, by the wickedness of those around him. And when the mob comes to his house, Lot tries to, to deal with them. He tries to say, no, guys, this isn't right. This isn't the way God would have us live. He, he doesn't explicitly mention God, but he says, this isn't right. And of course, What's the usual reaction when you say, that's not the right thing to do? It's exactly what Lots gets, isn't it? It's, who are you to judge us? John says to us in his gospel that Jesus is the light and that he came into this world, but the world hates him because we love the darkness more than we love the light. And in a similar but, but much smaller way, of course, the city of Sodom hated Lot because he represented God. He was a righteous man. I mean, keeping God's way as God was teaching Abraham to do is not something that will necessarily make us popular. Um, in fact, we might get the comment, who says God rules? I love the way uh, Lot's steps, not stepsons, his sons-in-law, 
reply to him. It says, he went to say to them, God's about to judge the place. You've got to get out. And they thought he was joking. And one of the commentaries I read said uh, this, this idea of, of joking might actually carry the overtones of they thought he was being vulgar. They thought he was being crass to suggest that God would judge. In poor taste, Lot. If we put our trust in the God who raised Jesus from the dead, then, then Abraham is our spiritual father because we are made right with God by trusting God and Abraham was made right with God by trusting God. And, and like Abraham, we, we are getting to know God better and we are called to keep his way, to, to do what is right and just as God said right at the beginning. And as we do that, we're meant to represent God's plan for humanity. We're meant to say, guys, turn back to God and be saved. God is just. God will judge, but, but he's also patient. Second Peter, again, chapter 3 says, Jesus isn't keeping his, he's not slow as some believe slowness, but, but he's just being patient. He's, he hasn't returned to judge the world yet because he's giving us a chance to turn back to him and be saved. God is patient. And we are, the, we are the people who are calling them to turn before God. Patience run out. Because there will come a day when Jesus will judge everything. Sodom, as I said, was a beautiful place. It was a wonderful place. Jesus speaks about this incident. He says that, Luke chapter 17, everything was just going on as usual. If you want to look there, Luke chapter 17, verse 28. Turn, turn, turn. Luke chapter 17, verse 28. The world will be, speaking of when Jesus returns, the world will be as it was in the days of Lot. People went about their daily business, eating, drinking, buying, selling, farming, and building, until the morning loft left Sodom, and then fire from, and burning sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Yes, it will be business as usual right up to the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Everything looked like it was going well in the cities on the plain that morning. But... Things were not all peachy. And, and I wonder if, if there's a reason why Lot is so very insistent on taking these visitors, these men, so he thought, back to his house. I wonder if Lot knew if these guys would stay out in the city, there'd be trouble for them that night. And, and, and so he brings them home. And he, he makes a feast for them. It's a feast, but it's, it's a quick feast. He doesn't even have time to let bread rise with some yeast. It's flat bread that he makes for them. And then the night comes and the drama starts and you have this huge mob of men wanting to rape the visitors. And it's not just a small group of aberrants. It's what the, the Genesis says, the, all the men of the town arrived. Now I think that all is, is, is not saying every single one from dot to dot. It's just saying the vast majority. It seems like the sons-in-law weren't there. But, but the very vast majority of the guys are there, so much that you can say, everyone came. And we should stop 
at this point and, and just quickly say, what exactly is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain? What is it that caused such an outcry to God that, that caused God to come down and wipe them out? Now, the easy answer, which isn't the whole answer, is to say it's homosexuality, and that's why uh, God's going to judge us in exactly the same way, because this is all that they've done wrong. Well, it's obvious that homosexuality is part of it. And the Old Testament and New Testament are very clear that this is sin. Um, Romans chapter 1 says that homosexuality is a sign of people having rejected God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it's in the list of of those who won't inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, The Bible's clear that any sexual interaction outside of a heterosexual monogamous marriage is outside of God's will. It is sin. Uh, And and let's just be clear about this because us Christians get a bad rap for, for jumping on people who are homosexual. Let's just say the Bible says any sexual sin is sexual sin. Homosexuality is just as wrong as any other uh, sexual sin, or in fact any other sin. The thing is, sex is an area in, in life where sinful desires can readily flourish, regardless of one's orientation. We live in an age where pleasure, including sex, is, is God, is an idol. And God's challenge then and today is to say, knowing me is better than your sinful desires. And so we've got to, it's not popular these days because people want to rewrite the Bible, but we've got to say that part of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is this homosexuality, this, this saying, God, we will determine what we want to do and you can sod off. So the homosexual acting out is part of the sin of Sodom, as is the violence in the story. But, but, but I do think that they are not the whole story. They are just the, the tip of the iceberg of Sodom's attitude. Or that, that, that attitude of I will do what I want to do. I decide right from wrong. Ezekiel chapter 16 says that uh, the Sodom had a reputation for excess and injustice, which we don't hear about here in Genesis, but, but, but that's, uh, that's just another view on the city. It's a place where I matter more than you. In other words, this isn't just a place where there's one sin that God thinks is so horrible that he's going to wipe it out. God thinks all sins are horrible. The problem with Sodom and Gomorrah and all these places is that they are just so right has become wrong and wrong has become right. And just almost every part of life you look at and they're turning and they're thumbing their noses at God. And of course, uh, sexuality comes into that because it's such a rife area for, uh, for sinful desires to, to take root. But God's people are to be like Lot in this world. They had to say, no, this isn't right. This isn't what God wants. No, this isn't right. I'm better than you guys. Is what people think we're saying. That, I I said to you, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul includes homosexuality as 
one of the lists of people who will not be in the kingdom of God. But you read down a little bit in, in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, and some of you used to be like that. But now you have been washed. In other words, you've turned, you've said, God, that was me, but I want better than that. God, that was me, but I believe when you say that following you is worth more than that. Forget the homosexuality, any sin. It's turning and saying, God, I am a messed up individual. Save me. And so it's not about saying, no, that's not right. I'm better than you. It's saying, no, that's not right. I used to do that. I used to be there. I used to be like you, but I've turned and God says, God says he's worth so much more and I'm trusting him. And if God is God, then he is the one who decides right from wrong and I don't have that right. And if God says it's wrong, then it's wrong. Even if it's something that I've struggled with, God says it's wrong, it's wrong. Won't you turn with me and say, God, be merciful to us. You know what, that, that wonderful story, this is a digression, that story of Jonah where he goes and says, this is horrible, I don't want to do this, and, and he runs away and fish and spew and blah, 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 and he gets there in the end, and, and he goes through the city saying, doom and gloom, the end of the world is nigh for you guys, you're going to get your comeuppance, and the city goes, wow, God is God, and they repent, and they put on sackcloth and ashes, and they're like, maybe God will, will, will forgive us. Maybe God will relent. And God does. I love Jonah because Jonah gets into a hissy fit and says, I knew you'd forgive him, God. You're just that kind of God. And it's not fair. I hate them. But, but that's, that's what this is about, isn't it? This is about saying, guys, God forgives. God forgives. I love what Paul says. He he says in Timothy, again, he lists a whole bunch of people who won't be in the kingdom. And he says all these horrible, horrible sins, horrible, horrible sins. Down at the bottom of the chapter, he says, by the way, I'm the chief of sinners. So that God can show. That's what Paul's life is all about. It's about God showing how good he is. That's what my life's all about. Well, Abraham, you know, we've looked at Abraham. Isn't he a messed up character? Isn't he just not the sort of person you'd invite around to your house for a meal? And yet God looks at him and says, I'm going to use you. I'm going to choose you. I'm going to show myself to you. I'm going to forgive you. And I want you to go to the world and keep my way and, and do right and do what is just. And Lot was a righteous man, says Second Peter. And everyone knows that when a righteous man is confronted with a mob that wants to rape your guests, the thing that you do is offer them your daughters. Uh-huh. Isn't he just like them? It reads like that, doesn't it? But I wonder, I wonder if we're not reading it wrong. I wonder if he wasn't actually trying to prick their consciences. I wonder if it's not more of a, a stronger version of, well, you better have the shirt off my back as well. There's an Old Testament theologian, uh, John Walton, who says, uh, basically, Lot is saying, you might as well expect me to hand over my daughters. I don't think he was actually going to do it. If he is a righteous man, 
Yes, righteous people are saved by grace only, but, but I, I don't think he was actually offering to hand over his daughters. I think he was saying to them, guys, you wouldn't do this to my daughters. Why are you doing it to my guests? There's a a similar incident that happens in Judges chapter 16, a little bit later in Israelite history. And and in this case, it's it's a priest who's just married his concubine, is bringing her back. He takes her into the village. Men arrive. They say, come on, where's the man who's come there? We want to... We want to have our way with him. And the guy comes out and says, no, 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 don't do this. It's terrible. You, you might as well have, have the woman in the house. And they get all angry and he jumps back inside. And the guy inside thinks, oh, that's a good idea. And he chucks his concubine out. And they basically kill her. Notice nobody chucks anyone outside in this story. Nobody thinks, oh, that's a really good idea, Lot. That'll keep us safe. I think the point here, Lot is not saying, this is a good idea, let's do it. Lot is saying to them, what you guys are suggesting is a horrible idea. Stop and think about it. I would not give you my daughters. Why would I give you my guests? I think Lot is being salt and light because look at the reaction that he gets. His reaction is, who are you to judge us? crowd was having none of it. And it's only because the angels blind the mob that the house is not mobbed and attacked. And they tell Lot to go and fetch his sons-in-laws and he goes and they think he's, he's joking, perhaps even vulgar and poor taste. But God is merciful to Lot. And, and the angels drag him out of town before dawn and, and it's about maybe, depending on where exactly the cities are, maybe 15 kilometers to Zoar. Uh, But look at verse 22. We're we're almost done here. If you look at verse 22 of chapter 19, we're told here something that, that, that I don't think I've really picked up before. Hurry, verse 22, escape to it, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Nothing can happen until they get to this little town. But Lot's wife looked back and was turned to a pillar of salt. I've always had the picture of them running, running desperately, fire brimstone erupting behind them, cities burning, and Lot's wife turning over her shoulder going, oh no, look at the destruction, and turning into a pillar of salt as she glanced back. That's not what happened. I can do nothing until you get there. The command to not look back in verse 17 of chapter 19 is sandwiched between two other commands. The angel basically says, get out of here. Don't turn back and don't stop until you reach your destination. I think Lot's wife did more than just glance over her shoulder to see the destruction. I wonder if she didn't, as they were going, turn around and go, well, nothing's happening. God schmod. Uh, This phrase, look back, is used... Two other times in the Old Testament, in Exodus 33 and 1 Samuel 24. And both times it's more than just a casual glance. It's about focusing your attention on something behind you or after somebody else. And Luke chapter 17, verse 20 to 37, Jesus is speaking again 
as we saw earlier about the coming of the kingdom, the day when he returns. And he says there in verse 32, uh, remember what happened to Lot's wife. And Jesus carries on. He says, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. And, you, and if you let your life go, you will save it. You see, I, I think what happened with Lot's wife is not just that she casually glanced over her shoulder to see the destruction that wasn't happening yet. I think that when she turned around, she turned around. She was clinging to her old life in Sodom. This talk of God destroying it was silly talk. Now, I, I don't know, but I can't help but wonder. They have to be dragged out of the house, out of the city, in the very early hours of the morning, just before destruction, because they've been taking their time. I can't help but wonder if they were taking their time because Lot and his wife were having an unholy row about whether they should go or not. It certainly strikes me that she did not want to go. I don't know, but I can picture Lot's wife turning around halfway to the city of Zoar, the village of Zoar, and going, Lot, you're being stupid. Nothing's happening. I'm going home. I'll see you in a couple of days when you come to your senses. Lot and his daughters carry on. They arrive in Zohar. And then what Lot's wife knew wouldn't happen happens. And she dies. And it's possible that she was engulfed by the mineral salts falling down. You look at Pompeii, people covered in ash. It's, I, I'm not sure that this is just a one-off, nothing else happening, and all of a sudden, whoop, she turns into salt. I think it's a case of she's not with them. Because she's turned back. She's clung to her old life. Let's finish here. What, what does it all mean for us? It's a horrible story. I hope you have nightmares. No, don't have nightmares tonight. But it's that kind of horrible story, isn't it? We live in an age where Sodom and Gomorrah would fit right in. Right is wrong and wrong is right. And if you dare to say otherwise, well, you get judged judgmental like Lot. Jesus, uh, in Matthew chapter 10, is referencing Micah. He, he, he says that he came to, to bring division, that, that even the most intimate of relationships will be broken. So a man will be against his father, a daughter against her mother. Uh, enemies will be within your own household. And, and it strikes me that this is what happened with Lot as well. His sons-in-law, who were supposed to respect him, thought he was an idiot. His wife... I'm not doing what the angel said. You're being stupid, Lord. Jesus said that our job is to be the salt and light of this world. To not live according to the standards of society, but those of God. Uh, the New Testament, in fact, the whole Bible says to us, we are to put to death our sinful desires uh, since we died to them with Jesus. It can be so tempting for us to, to think especially of Jesus' return as Peter addresses in his second letter and say, well, it's been so long. You know what? I, I'm just, God's not going to judge us. I, I can do what I want. I can enjoy myself. You know, life's good living here in Sodom. So we might turn around and with Lot's wife go home. And say, God, I'm very happy with what I'm doing and where I'm at. And when you give me some proof that you actually are going to judge, 
well, I'll think about it, but you're going to have to give some good proof because I like what I'm doing. The day is coming, though, when God has determined to judge the world through Jesus. It's in his diary, if God has a diary. And now is the time to escape before the coming judgment. It's not like, it's not like Lot was given a force field, a shielding so that he would be you know, like science fiction as everything else burns. He's protected by a shield. No, he's, he's told, get out before it happens. And God has come to us in Jesus and said, I am the way for you to escape from the coming judgment. Turn to me. Let me take you, messed up as you are, and say, I will forgive you. I will undo all of your, your sin. I will take your punishment for you, and I will bring you to a place of safety. Could be at any moment. Let's not take Jesus' offer and, and say, how ridiculous. But let's also not take Jesus' offer and say, you know what? I've gone along a little bit, but it's taking too long. I, I, I'm not sure it's going to happen. This is one of the reasons we have a, a church. One of the reasons is so that we can encourage each other while it is still today that we don't, that we don't turn back like Lot's wife. May Hebrews 10, verse 37 to 39 be true of us. Hebrews says, For in just a little while the coming one will come, and he will not delay. And my righteous ones will live by faith, will live because they trust me. But I will take no pleasure in anyone who turns away. But we are not like those who turn away from God to their own destruction. We are the faithful ones whose soul will be saved. My brothers and sisters, there was a lot of good stuff in Sodom. Life was good. They were wealthy. They were rich. They had it made. There's a lot of good stuff in this world. But if we cling to our life, we will lose it. Because life is only in Jesus. May Hebrews 10, verse 37 to 39 be true of all of us. Pam.